So this morning, we are starting a new Christmas sermon series called The Gifts Jesus Brings. And in this series, we're going to be focusing on the doctrine of the incarnation. The word in plus carnus, in meaning in something and carnus meaning flesh. It's the idea that in Jesus, God became man. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus has always existed from eternity past as fully God, part of the Trinity. But 2,000 years ago, he also took on human nature and a human body so that he could die on the cross to save people from their sins. Now, you might wonder, why are you talking about the cross when we're focusing on Christmas? Why bring the cross to the manger? I mean, the, the manger is just such a sweet, beautiful setting, and the cross is so harsh. Well, the point is we can only understand the manger rightly if we understand the cross, because the cross is why Jesus came and was laid in a manger. If we try to take the cross away from the manger, we're dishonoring Jesus because the cross was his purpose for coming. And by understanding the cross, this helps us understand the beauty of the manger all the more. So that's why we're bringing the cross into the picture. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at different passages which teach the biblical doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus taking on human body, human nature. And today we're going to focus on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. Now let me give you some background. The city of Corinth was the largest and wealthiest city in Greece, it was full of false teachings and wickedness. But at around the year A.D. 50, Paul came to Corinth, started preaching the good news of Jesus. People were convicted of their sins, saw the beauty of Jesus, the picture of the gospel, the cross. They turned from their sin, put their trust in Christ, were born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and a church was planted. And we have two letters written by Paul to this church in Corinth. 1st and 2nd Corinthians in our New Testaments. And today I want us to focus on 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Let's read these verses. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, one problem with jumping right into the middle of a book like this is that we're not sure what's the overall context, what's the author talking about, what, what's his purpose in writing. And that's why at Grace Church, we usually preach through books of the Bible from beginning to end. So we get the whole context as it unfolds. But from time to time, it can also be helpful to study one passage from one particular book as part of a series, because that'll help us understand a doctrine in a thematic sort of way. But when we do that, we need to be sure that we're taking each passage in its context and understand what's going on. So let's start by asking this question. What was going on at the church in Corinth? And what was Paul's purpose then in writing this letter of 2 Corinthians? 
So Paul planted a church there around the year AD 50 and then left to preach the gospel elsewhere. The church at Corinth then grew in faith and love, impacted others, people came to faith in Christ. But after some time, problems started to develop. And Paul heard about these problems. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians to address problems like the danger of making leaders into celebrities, how to deal with a church member who'd fallen into serious sin, whether to eat food offered to idols, and how to disagree with those who might have a different opinion on that, how to celebrate communion, how to practice spiritual gifts, and why we can know that God will raise us from the dead just as he raised Jesus from the dead. So the church at Corinth welcomed Paul's letter, embraced these truths, these corrections, and grew strong as a result. But again, Paul was not there. He was still out preaching the gospel, planting churches. And while Paul was away, some false teachers came to the church at Corinth and started teaching. They claimed to be apostles, apostles that were better than Paul. They said Paul was an inferior apostle and that their message was, was the right message. And they were eloquent, powerful communicators. People loved to listen to them. And tragically, many, it seems, in the church in Corinth turned away from the true gospel and followed this false gospel. Now we can see that by looking at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 6. Such a sobering passage. Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. These verses show that many of these church members had turned from Jesus and the true gospel to a false gospel, a false Jesus. And this is serious. Because if someone turns from the true Jesus to a false gospel, then their eternity is at stake. And that's why Paul, in this letter, his purpose is to urge them to turn back to the true gospel and the true Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with us? Everything. Because every day, every one of us is tempted to turn from the true gospel to a false gospel. The reason I say that is because the word gospel means, as you know, good news. And so your gospel is whatever you think is the good news of what will satisfy you and secure your future. Every human being has some kind of a gospel, something that they believe will satisfy them and secure their future. So, for example, if you turn from Jesus to another religion, thinking that that religion is what's going to 
satisfy you and secure your future, then you've turned to another gospel. That's, that's obviously a false gospel. But we can also turn from the true gospel of Jesus to trust the gospel of money, that money's what's going to satisfy us and secure our future, or friends, or fame, or jealousy, or nurturing a grudge, or whatever it might be. But none of these things except Jesus. Oh, only Jesus can truly satisfy our hearts fully and secure our future fully. Only Jesus can. There's only one true gospel and one true Jesus. So how can we tell what gospel we are turning to? Ask yourself this question. Over this past week, what have you been seeking your joy in the most? What have you been longing for the most, pursuing the most, wanting to talk about the most? Whatever that is, that's your gospel. Maybe it's Jesus, maybe it's money, maybe it's entertainment, fame, whatever it might be. So ask yourself this past week, what have you been seeking your joy in the most, longing for the most, desiring the most? If we're desiring seeking our joy the most in something besides Jesus, then we're seeking a false gospel. That's why what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians has everything to do with us. Because every day we're tempted to turn from Jesus and the true gospel to a false gospel, a false Jesus. So that's what's going on with the church at Corinth. And 2 Corinthians is written to persuade them to turn back to the true Jesus and the true gospel. And we can see that in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. So now with that in mind, let's raise this second question. What is Paul calling them to do? The answer is in verse 20. Let's read it again. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, you might wonder, that's puzzling. Isn't he talking to church people? Why would he encourage church people to be reconciled to God? Haven't they already been reconciled to God? And the answer is that Paul is not sure whether they've been reconciled to God or not. Because if someone seemingly turned to Jesus at some point in their life, but now they're turning to another gospel and they're pursuing another gospel without repenting or confessing it, then that raises questions as to, are they reconciled? Did they genuinely receive Jesus at the beginning or not? And the only way that this person can know whether they are reconciled is by turning back to the true gospel now, which is why Paul is calling them, be reconciled to God. Turn back to the true gospel now. So how then do we turn back? How do we be reconciled to God? What does it mean to be reconciled to God? To understand this, we have to understand God's wrath. This is not my favorite topic to talk about. I'd, I'd much rather talk about God's love and his compassion and his care. But the same Bible talks about God's wrath because we need to understand God's wrath in order to fully understand God's love. That's crucial for us. So let's talk about God's wrath. The reason God has wrath against us is because we've all sinned against God. 
We've all turned our backs on God and, and lived lives that have displayed to the world, there is no God, and if there is one, you can't trust him. You can't, he, he lies, you can't trust him. That's what our lives have displayed. And that mocks and blasphemes the infinite glory of God. And because God is completely just, he must punish that sin. So because we've lived lives that have mocked God's infinite glory, we deserve punishment from God forever. Now let me give you an example of how sin mocks God's glory. I know that God has promised that he is my all-satisfying treasure, that in him only my heart can be completely filled to overflowing with joy and peace. Nothing else can do that. He is all that I need. In him alone, I have all the joy that would overflow and fill my heart. I know that by experience. And all of you who are trusting Jesus, you know that by experience too. We have times where our hearts overflow with this joy of knowing God. We're filled completely. But this last week, I found that I was feeling jealous about someone. And my jealousy was proclaiming to the whole world, yes, there's a God, I believe there's a God, but, but you can't trust him when he says that he is what's going to satisfy your heart completely. I need that, what that person has, to have my heart be satisfied completely. So you can't trust God. God is not enough. And by having that jealousy, I was displaying to the world mockery and blasphemy of God's infinite glory. And so my jealousy deserved God's punishment. Do you see how that works? So where does this leave us? Every human being is separated from God, facing God's wrath forever because of his or her sin. And so every human being needs to be reconciled to God. So how do we get reconciled to God? How do we do that? Every other religion teaches that the way you get reconciled to God is by trying to have your good outweigh your bad. It's like scales and your, your sin is so bad, it's all imbalanced. And if you could just do some more good to kind of get the scales up, get the, more, get the good going so the, the bad won't be as bad, then you'll be reconciled to God. That's what every other religion teaches. So we might, we might start going to church hoping that, okay, that good over here, that good will kind of bring the bad up. Or we'll start praying or reading the Bible or overcoming some bad habit. That's what we think. But listen, no matter how hard we try, nothing we do can make our good outweigh our bad. For two reasons. One is, you've experienced this, no matter how hard we try, in our own power, we can't stop sinning. Sin is just part of our nature. It just rises up. It's just there. Even our most holy, obedient moments are still tinged with impure motives and pride. Don't we all experience that? I mean, like, I set my heart to get some time to pray and seek God's face and, and, and read his word. And God in his grace touches me and, and faith starts to rise up and I start to pray and I start to seek him and I start to worship. But then my pride whispers something like, wow, look at you. You are really praying. That is quite impressive. I, I bet you're praying more than a lot of people pray. You see how that is? Even at our best moments, pride just comes right up and whispers horrible words like that. So we all experience that. The more we try to 
have our good outweigh our bad, the more bad we do and the worse it gets. Left to ourselves apart from Jesus, that's what happens. So that's one reason. The second reason our good can't outweigh our bad is because good is just what we're supposed to do. I mean, think about it. God is perfectly, flawlessly good, flawlessly wise, and infinitely powerful. And so we have every reason to trust God completely and obey him instantly and love him passionately and supremely. We have every reason to do that. That's just what we are supposed to do. So doing those things doesn't earn anything because that's just what we're supposed to do. Here's an illustration. Let's say that tomorrow you're going to go to work, but you're planning on getting there right on time. You're going to put in some extra effort and get there right on time, maybe even a little bit early. And so sure enough, you get there, boom, it's, you're there a little bit early. Oh, awesome. Now imagine going to your manager's office, knocking on the, the door. He says, come in. And you say, uh, I just want to mention that I got to work on time today, even a little bit early. And, and so like, that deserves a bonus, right? Or something extra, right? No, it doesn't. Your manager would say, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Come on time. That's just what you're supposed to do. That doesn't earn anything extra. So how much of God's wrath can we appease by doing more good? How much can our good outweigh our bad? It just doesn't work because we continue to sin and because even perfect good is just what we're supposed to do. It doesn't gain us anything extra. So this leaves us all separated from God and facing his wrath forever. And that is heartbreaking. But the good news is that God in great love and great compassion has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. The question is, how? How can we be reconciled to God? And the answer is in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. Let's read that verse again. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a crucial verse for us to understand if we're going to be clear on the gospel, the true Jesus. So who is this person who knew no sin? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus never, ever sinned. He's the only human being who has been perfectly sinless. He always perfectly trusted the Father and loved other people. Now, I want to give you a picture of this with a little visual aid here, just so that you can see how this works. So here is Jesus, perfectly sinless, okay? Perfect love, perfect purity, perfect joy, mercy, perfect truth, peace, hope, and kindness. Jesus has never sinned. He has been flawless all of his life long. But now we need to contrast Jesus with us. So here's us. Very different picture. We are full of sin. Pride, hate, gossip, anger, 
jealousy, lust, and greed. There is us, complete contrast. Jesus, perfect sinlessness. Us, full of sin. So what did God do? What did God do? For our sake, with Jesus, passionate, yes, Father, do it. God the Father made Jesus to be sin. What does that mean? It does not mean that Jesus started actually sinning. Jesus never sinned. What it means is that the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, God took all of your sin and put it upon Jesus and punished Jesus in your place for all of your sin on the cross. So the moment you put your trust in Jesus, God takes all of your sin and he put it upon Jesus. And Jesus was punished for your sin. So let's, let's get specific. Take yesterday's gossip. Because you're trusting Jesus, God punished yesterday's gossip in Jesus, in your place. That's what he did. Or think about last week's greed. Because you're trusting Jesus, God punished Jesus for your greed. Or maybe yesterday's driving when you were angry at some driver who cut you off or something. Because you're trusting Jesus, God punished Jesus for your anger. So for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. God put our sin upon Jesus and punished Jesus for our sin. And notice what the result of that was in verse 21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God punished our sin in Jesus so that we could become the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean that we become more and more actually righteous. That does happen when God saves you. We do become more loving and kind and trusting in God. We, we do become more and more righteous. Other passages teach that. That's not what this passage teaches. And we see that from comparing the first half of verse 21 which says that God made Jesus to be sin. It doesn't mean that Jesus actually sinned. What it means is that God put all of our sins upon Jesus, punished Jesus, so Jesus receives what our sin deserves. He put our sin upon Jesus, and Jesus receives what our sin deserves, namely punishment. And so the second half of the verse needs to have a parallel to say the same thing. It means that when we, God makes us to be the righteousness of God, it doesn't mean that we become actually righteous. It means that God puts Jesus' perfect righteousness upon us, his perfect righteousness upon us, and then we receive the, the consequences of Jesus' perfect righteousness. So what, here's what this means. When God saves us, the moment we put our trust in Christ, not only does God take all of our sin and put it upon Jesus and punish Jesus for our sin. But God also takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and gives it to us as a gift, covers us with it, and so we get to receive all the consequences of Jesus' perfect righteousness. This is amazing. So 
God makes Jesus to be sin, puts all of our sin upon Jesus, and Jesus receives the consequences of our sin. And God takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and gives it to us as a gift. And so we receive all the consequences, the benefits, the blessings of Jesus' perfect righteousness. So God the Father delights in us as he delights in Jesus, his son. God loves you who are trusting Jesus as much as he loves Jesus, his son. God delights in you like he delights in Jesus, his son. God fills you with joy as he fills Jesus with joy. God will raise you from the dead as he raised, raised Jesus from the dead. This is amazing. This is the great exchange that takes place. The moment that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, a supernatural transaction takes place, which we could not believe if we didn't read it right here in the Bible. This is what God does. So we're asking the question, how can we be reconciled to God? And, and this is the answer. It's that 2,000 years ago, Jesus took on human nature, human flesh, was born and laid in a manger, grew up so that he could die on the cross to pay for sin. And so the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, God takes all of your sin, past, present, and future, and he puts it upon Jesus and he punishes Jesus for your sin. And he takes all of Jesus' perfect righteousness and he gives it to you so that you receive all the benefits of Jesus' perfect righteousness. And by doing that, you are reconciled to God. Your relationship with God is restored. You are in relationship, loving, kind relationship, never ever to face any punishment from God. God satisfies you. He will fill you with joy again and again and again, and he will secure your future in Christ through the cross and the resurrection forever. That's what happens. The moment we turn from false gospels, turn from sin and trust Jesus and the true gospel, the great exchange takes place, our sins punished in Jesus, Jesus' righteousness given to us, and all of the benefits of Jesus' righteousness are ours now and forever. So, what does this mean for us, Grace Church? It means be reconciled. Be reconciled to God. Look at what God has done. Look at his love and his mercy. Look at Jesus' compassion and grace toward us. Be reconciled to God. Turn away from every vestige of false gospel that you've been trusting today and trust Jesus Christ, the true gospel. Now, let me leave you with four takeaways. First of all, ask yourself, what gospel am I trusting? What are you trusting? Honestly, search your heart. What are you trusting to satisfy you and secure your future? Be honest, what is the gospel? Then second takeaway, no other gospel is true. Jesus is true, his gospel is true, no other gospel is true. So if you're trusting some other gospel, third takeaway, turn from that, turn from all false gospels and trust Jesus Christ. Right now, just turn your back on those false gospels and trust Jesus to forgive you, to change you, and to satisfy you in himself, to fill you with his joy and his love. He will, he will do that right now. Turn from false gospels right now and turn to trust Jesus. And you will be assured you are reconciled to God. You and God 
reconciled, friends, beautiful, saved. That's what God does. Fourth takeaway. Tell someone about this amazing Christmas gift from Jesus. Tell someone. Who can you share with this week? Who could you share about this amazing Christmas gift that's ours in Jesus? It's the best news in the world. We want all of Abu Dhabi to hear about this amazing Christmas gift that Jesus gives to us. So share this good news with people that you know. Oh, may God spread the gospel of reconciliation throughout this city for people's great good and for Jesus' great glory. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing good news of reconciliation, which can be ours by faith alone in Christ alone. So, oh God, would you pour out your spirit upon us in a fresh way right now to see clearly what other gospels we're trusting, to turn from those other gospels and trust you, Jesus Christ, to satisfy us completely and to secure our future through your death on the cross and your resurrection. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.